You're listening to the Handmade CEO Podcast. My name is Kiana Jones, artist and founder of Happening Hands, a community that helps makers and creative business owners build thriving, profitable businesses. Every week on our podcast, we discover the steps and motivation that inspire our guests to create income from their skills. Get ready to start learning how to build that profitable handmade or creative business that you've always dreamed of. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Handmade CEO Podcast. Today's special guest is Bobby Hedgeland-Taylor, a circus and aerial sequence designer and trainer who has worked on and off Broadway, as well as in New York nightclubs as a stand-up comedian, and has recently become a self-published author. If you've thought about self-publishing a book, this episode is a great place to start. Welcome to the show, Bobby. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got started in the super creative career that you've made for yourself? Because you do a lot, um, but I really <laughs> want to know like how it all started and what possessed you to become a trapeze artist and what does an aerial designer do? I need to know that. Wow. Okay. So I was born and then what happened is the question. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, um, I'm a farm kid. I was born on a small family farm in Pennsylvania. Um, My parents, very poor. My my entire family was, you know, my entire adult family um, and extended family is mostly Sicilian, Sicilian and English. And um, then on grandmother's side, um, she was, okay, it's hard to describe, but my grandmother is the eldest of 13 children. Wow. Two born from the first great grandmother, mm-hmm. full blood Sicilian. That great grandmother died of the Spanish flu, and then, which is ironic that my mother died of COVID and a hundred years later, almost exactly. crazy. Um, uh, and um, so, so then the second wife, this my second great grandmother, who I didn't know was mm-hmm. Greek, and they met in Athens, and so half of my great grandparents are, are my great uncles and aunts are all half Greek. So, so there's this, there's this mid, this European little bubble um, that was born on top of a mountain in Pennsylvania, which is why I named my second book, Escape to Ravioli Mountain, a memoir in food. It's amazing. And it's a cookbook and it's all the recipes and all the stories from living on that mountain uh, in the 1970s, mm. my grandmother. Um, so yeah, so born into this, this crazy dysfunctional bubble on the top of a mountain in Pennsylvania. What does one do when they want to be creative? Well, you <laughs> climb trees, you walk fences, you, you have, you're surrounded by animals. I was like, I'm the, you know, I was like, I was like Cinderella, you know, go out and sing to the birds. And, you, know, <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, when you're, you're a queer kid growing up in that kind of environment, all you can think about is getting off the hill and getting out of that town. <laughs> it's, sure. uh, you know, and um, it, 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 it does come to light that, um, you know, very early on, I wanted to be in the performing arts, but I didn't mm-hmm. have the avenue to do it. And um, then I joined the Boy Scouts in okay. the 1970s, and that changed my life. Um, Eagle Scout uh, was my, my highest rank in, in Boy Scouts. But the campfires and campfire songs and the little skits that we would do were part of like the, the beginning and the molding of my theatrical world. So okay. I started in theater and then in, um, then in the eighties, I got a full scholarship to the Stroudsburg ballet theater. And then I got a full scholarship to the American musical and dramatic Academy. 
which yeah. led me to move to New York. And so I, um, I began the, I began my theatrical career, probably I would say 1978 was my, mm-hmm. my first like real taste of it, but I didn't do mm-hmm. anything professional until the mid eighties. And that's when things started to spiral. Um, okay. And then out of the blue, I moved to New York. I get, I go, I go to school, graduate from AMDA. And then six months later, I'm on the road with the circus because the first thing I get is a circus musical and they send me to a coach. So, um, so yeah, so there was one coach in New York city, Irina gold Mm -hmm. was her name, a Ukrainian Olympian who was the only person who was willing to teach non circus family members in her personal studio. And that was a big thing because back in the day, circus families would never, never train somebody who was not a circus family or married into a circus family. So um, it was kind of uh, groundbreaking for her to do that, Mm -hmm. um, to educate people and to teach this art form to people like me who were not from a circus family. I mean, my family was a circus, you know, (laughs) you know, it it was just, you know, it was a little different breaking dishes and throwing knives, which is still totally different style. Um, But um, so, yeah, so that led me to my theatrical and circus career. Um, and then through the nineties, I made most of my money working in the nightclubs in New York city as an acrobat. And Mm -hmm. we had several nightclubs that were very, very popular. And just like studio 54, things would hang over the dance floor. You would have an acrobat sitting up there. Most of the time it was a pretty woman, um, Mm -hmm. which was what the, which was what like the scene was. But Mm -hmm. so I had to wait my turn. There were only six acrobats who were trained by Irina that um, were working in the nightclub industry. And so I had to cut my teeth by waiting for one of the ladies to be sick or to be out so I could work their spot. Um, I was basically a swing in the in the in the in the circus world and in the theater world. A swing Mm -hmm. is in the in the in the theater is somebody who covers all the roles when somebody's out or covers like I cover the chorus. In the musical Barnum, I covered 17 people. So that means I, cu- I knew where, if at any time they were out, I did their entire track in the show. We told the story that way. Um, I also covered a lot of the leads. I also was, for some productions, I was the standby for P.T. Barnum. So it was like, okay. I had the, in- the insurance, I could hum you the scene change music. That's how much I know the show. <laughs> um, so, um, so that's what I, that's how I started to get, gather all of that information. Uh, then moved to San Francisco for a while. I was teaching at the Circus Center out there. I was also training with Master Lu Yi from uh, from uh, the the um, uh, Chinese Circus. And um, then I moved back to New York, start, restarted my life. And then shortly thereafter, I began getting calls to do theater and circus together. Musicals like Barnum, Cabaret, um, Carnival. Uh, okay. There were so many different musical sideshow where I wanted to incorporate different elements in the air. So I basically created a career by um, taking the two worlds that I was most familiar with and putting them together. And mm-hmm. as I understood musical, musical theater, reading music, the score, dancing, and then I understood circus rigging, circus performance, and how to do them all together. Interesting. When you think of... When you're reading a when you're reading a story, let's take Tarzan. Um, okay. This is one of the most um, one of the most uh, eye opening moments for me was when I worked with Paul Rubin, who designed all the flying in the musical Wicked. Um, he and I did a production of Tarzan, and as I was watching him work, mm-hmm. he explained that 
anything that happens in the air, if it's not part of the story or if it doesn't turn the page, it's gratuitous. And therefore, it's just, oh, somebody's hanging from wires. So then when you take in the musical Tarzan, there's a song called Son of Man, where Mm -hmm. young Tarzan grows into old Tarzan in two and a half minutes. So how do you do that? So you, the way that it was done was little Tarzan was swinging on the vine across the theater into the wings. And then from the back of the house, sliding down on a rope was grown up Tarzan at 18 years old. So okay. we've, we've turned the page, we passed the time. So that little three minute song basically turned 18 years of, mm-hmm. of a story. So that the audience is very theatrically entertained, obviously by seeing something in the air, but Mm-hmm. that is telling the story. So aerial sequencing and sequencing, sequencing design mm-hmm. involves circus. It involves um, a lot of mechanics and a lot of cabling and a lot of harnesses. So those kind of things are what I did. You know, my Broadway shows are over here. Um, yeah. and those, are the, those are the kind of things that I incorporated into my work. And mm-hmm. that's what an aerial sequence designer is. Um, and that's kind of what I do now, although the pandemic put a damper on everything theatrical. Sure, um, I'm sure. Yeah. When you think about a budget for a musical, you think mm-hmm. director, choreographer, musical director, cast, mm-hmm. a, a uh, set designer. And then you think, well, what do we need for this story to happen? Um, the last thing on their list is aerial sequence design. Unless they're doing Peter Pan. You know, if Peter Pan doesn't sure. fly, you're doing the wrong thing. You're doing something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's those kind of musicals, which are sort of like on the back burner, they will mm-hmm. eventually come back, but these are theaters that lost almost two years of income. So they're going to go with the most, you know, the shows that are going to bring in the most bank and the quickly Annie, um, you know, Music Man, uh, Fiddler sure. on the Roof, all the classics they're going to bring back because they are tried and true and mm-hmm. it's a formula. So they know exactly what it's going to cost them and how they can make bank. Um, and that's just, that's just economics. Theater's a business. So sure. My work will come back on that level, um, but in the meanwhile, I'm I'm writing. I'm doing stand up. I am, uh, you know, a vocal impressionist now, and I mm-hmm. do a lot of a lot of uh, nightclub gigs where I just make people laugh, and I love that. Um, I'm also, you know, I'm in my fifties. I had a hip replacement, mm-hmm. so my acrobatic world is changed so severely because yeah. um, my physical limitations. But I've already started getting back into the air. And I've already done two performances of uh, an act we call Spanish Web, which is a rope that spins really fast. You lock your wrist in and the person below you spins you really fast. So I'm slowly coming back to doing more of my what what, what my my passion is, which is the creativity Mm -hmm. and the design. I think my quote that I give is that um, uh, the human body is my paintbrush and midair is my canvas. So mm-hmm. I get to use a person's body to make shapes and designs to tell the story. And even if it's, even if it's nonverbal, there's still communication and the audience is affected by what I do. That's so beautiful. Um, you know, I've never thought about, about this. Um, I, I mean, I feel like I've seen shows like, have you seen Face Off before? Yes. They mm-hmm. did a season with aerial dancers and yep. I feel like I didn't I didn't really think about them very much until I watched that season and I was like, wow, how spectacular is this? And it's like a whole nother world. I actually worked in a puppetry museum for a while. So like I kind of I thought about 
about that, but that's like, mm. that's a lot different than, you know, somebody in the air. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's really a interesting. A lot of times you are, a lot of times, mm. the, um, well, the, I, I remember that episode, the episode, and also they did a Cirque du Soleil episode as well. Yeah, they did. And, yeah. Um, so they combined, because Cirque du Soleil uses a lot of the prosthetics that they build and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, part of the challenge was make your work uh, flexible. Yeah. Because once you're in the air, everything changes. Your, your body is sitting a different way. You're hanging a different way, depending on where the harness is. All of those things change. So it is very, mm -hmm. it's a very unique uh, thing. I worked with the band Fish at Madison Square mm -hmm. Garden. And um, so I did that two years, uh, 2012 and 2018. 2012, mm -hmm. we were like a flash mob. And we were dressed as concert goers. With, we, we came in with backpacks on. And we're just standing there, we're dancing, we're jamming to the music, and then somebody comes up behind us and clips the harnesses that are underneath our costume and turns on our backpacks, and we slowly float up. It's on you. It's on YouTube. You can see it. It's the, the oh my song. god, I have to watch that. That sounds so cool. Team, and it was right before New Year's, before the the ball. We were the ball drop, basically. Okay. Um, but we floated up seventy five feet in the air, doing really slow movement over the crowd while our backpacks were shooting out fog. That's then crazy. the the countdown happens, the balloon drop happens, and then we have our handler and we're standing there next. People are like hugging us. We're like, wait, we got more. And, um, <laughs> and then they took Velcro and Velcroed these giant headlights to our hands, uh, took off the backpacks. And then after they played Old Lang Syne, the lights mm -hmm. went down and then there was a song called Down With Disease, which is a great fish number. It's really poppy. And then they mm -hmm. flew us up at 18 feet per second as fast as we could go. And That's then crazy. we did all this thrashing choreography with the lights. It was really amazing. And then in 2018, we were in aerial nets. So we were mm -hmm. tethered to the net and to a tether point. And the song was called Mercury. And mm -hmm. one of the lyrics was the nets unbroken. And it, they weren't. And we had a blast. But it was also like this very wavy, posy choreography while we were tangled up in these nets dressed in flight suits. So it was so those, so you just never know what you're going to get. I get the strangest calls. Like even, even like um, somebody said, oh, could you come to Detroit and dress as Austin Powers and slide down a 60 foot rope and introduce Sheena Easton? And I was like, well, oh my shit, God. yeah, uh, where do I sign up? Can I pay you? <laughs> you know? And um, so, so yeah, there's a, so there's like those kind of things happen and they come mm -hmm. once in a lifetime and fish yeah. and twice in a lifetime. So I was very proud and happy to have that on my, uh, on my resume and radar because it was really just, it's just incredible to be in an arena like that. And you're 75 feet in the air. You're one of the oldest people in the air. There was two of us. Yeah. Actually, one of the women who started with me back in the eighties, Fran Sperling, she and mm -hmm. I were the two oldest at the top of Madison square garden. And I think it's a record of some kind, because I don't know any other older aerialists who have been up that high um, in Madison square garden, of course. So um, so yeah, so there are okay. many components to it. <clears throat> yeah. Do you find that aerial dancers typically retire early? Or is it one of those careers that's just very like physically demanding? And so, you know, you kind of get out of it early. Is that kind of the life of a circus performer? First of all, yeah. used to be you're born, you walk a tightrope before you walk on the floor. Mm. You get into the show, you work with your parents, you work with your grandparents. When your grandparents mm. retire, you buy a house for your grandparents and you keep supporting your grandparents all while you're growing up. 
when your grandparents pass, then your parents move into that house. And so it was like, that mm -hmm. was the circus family um, version. What I'm seeing, since it's such a fairly new industry to non-circus yeah. family, is mm -hmm. that people tap out around 35. Okay. Um, around 35, you realize that, you know, Cirque du Soleil is not going to hire you over 35. Mm -hmm. um, the bigger shows are going to take on younger people that they could have more longevity with. And mm -hmm. also your body does get beaten up. I mean, I retired, I guess I was in my forties when I really okay. considered rich. And that means retiring from a 10 show week, not, not, not just, sure. you know, just, but then I also got a job running a school and I was training people. And then I got all the Broadway credits with the Broadway stuff coming my way. So mm -hmm. I really felt like that was my niche market and that I needed to stay there and stay there as long as I could. And, um, because something there are, there, there are things out there. Like somebody's going to call me one day and say, we need a character actor in his fifties who can do X, Y, and Z in the air. Sure. And, yeah. and I'll be like, well, as long as I can wear a harness that won't mess up my hip replacement, sure. I'll be there. And that's how niche the market is, but it's usually mm -hmm. people tap out between 35 and 40. And by the time they're mm -hmm. 40, they've usually figured out that there is no 401k that mm -hmm. there is no insurance, that there is no job security. And that's one of the mm -hmm. hardest things because it is a fairly new industry and it is a industry that is, is obsessed with youth. And yeah. um, so we don't really have, um, there's no governing property to help either. There's no union. Um, so it is not for the faint of heart. And, it, but you know, what I, what I do is I try to save three percent, uh, one third of whatever I make mm -hmm. from my aerial sequencing and from, you know, performance jobs, at least one third. First of all, you're going to need money for taxes because all of that's sure. 1099. Nobody, nobody, nobody's on a W4 when it comes to that kind of stuff anymore. Um, but you have to be your 401k and mm. you have to be diligent about saving your money. The problem is, is that the jobs are so infrequent and they're so low paying now. I mean, back when I mm -hmm. started, I used to make my rent in one weekend and that was mm. unheard of um, for any actor of the time because you had to, you know, you had to do summer stock theater. You had to, you had to get, you know, commercials, you had to do commercial print. And mm. I did all of those things. But when I started working in the, in the nightclubs, I was like, well, damn, I'm not even going to bother going for this, you know, this, this one gig that only pays $250 a week, you know, and that was equity summer stock back in the 19 or early 1990s. I, remember I got a contract to do the musical Gypsy and it was equity summer stock, union summer stock. And it was only $250 a week. Um, and I turned it down to do a circus show in Vegas for 1500 a week. And mm. so I was just like, the circus world was paying so well back then. Now it's, yeah. now it's not, not even it's now it's equivalent to a bartender shift, which is really sad because it has become an industry of uh, young people that transition into uh, old, you know, whatever you're went, whatever you went to college for, you know, mm. you just have, you know, or you become a teacher or you open your own school. If you have the resources, um, there are many ways that people, um, navigate their position in the aerial industry. Um, it's just not, uh, universal there. Everybody's different because there is yeah. no government property. There's no like community center. It's just, you're on your own, you get your own gigs, you get your own equipment. 
Uh, you hire your own riggers. You have your own insurance. And um, so it is a um, very self-made industry. Um, but um, there are ways to make sure that you are safe in your, you know, because your body is your is your art form. Your body is your, it's your equipment. It should be yeah. on your equipment list. You know, a, a weekly massage should be on your, should be on your maintenance list. Um, but uh, it's just not recognized career-wise as much as, as it used to. So. Mm, I can totally agree with that. My mom's a massage therapist, so mm. she will definitely come and say, please get your weekly massage. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so I important. You, when I was on shows that had it available, I mm-hmm. used to feel guilty about it. Now I'm like, damn, I wish I would have taken advantage of it more often because. Yeah. Definitely. You know, shows like Cirque du Soleil include a massage therapist. In fact, a good friend of mine mm. handles all the Cirque shows when they come to New York. And mm-hmm. um, and he's like their go-to because he only works with acrobats and he's only deals with sports medicine, which is, mm-hmm. you know, what we need, you know. Yeah, definitely. Are you a maker who's struggling with knowing exactly how to grow your business and wish you could have someone just give you the steps to reach your goals and walk you through how to get there? If that's you, I want to send you a special invitation to sign up for business strategy coaching with me. We'll find your focus and goals for the next three months, and you'll receive a custom roadmap for how you're going to reach your goals in your business every day. Not only that, but we'll meet weekly for those three months so you can stay accountable to reaching your goals and have me as your personal marketing strategist in your corner. If you're ready to jump in, please shoot me an email at hello at happeninghands.com And we'll set up a time to chat about your business goals and where you want to go. That's it. Back to the show. While everything happened with the pandemic, you wrote a book, right? So (laughs) tell me a little bit about that. Um, Well, our listeners, I actually, you sent it to me last night. I read it and I started, well, I started reading it and I was like, I can't stop reading this. Um, I just kept reading and it was making me laugh and my toddler was watching something else. She was watching Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. She's obsessed with that currently. Um, And there's definitely people flying in the air in that one. So it's just funny that that kind of happened at the same time. But yeah, tell me a little bit about the book and how it came about. So um, my mom passed um, from COVID on March 21st, 2020. To, uh, 11 days after the they announced the lockdown in New York City. Um, she had been sick on and off from January to February and then mm-hmm. the first week of March. She had been going back and forth to the emergency room, which we all know that's how everything spread. Yeah. Um, I, we, I visited with her every day. She was my, you know, we were best buddies, you know, mm-hmm. she was, she had dementia, but she had been in the nursing home for almost six years. So whenever she would have a choice, a a choice words for somebody or a story, something that was completely bonkers and off the world, off the, off the, off the track, I would post it on social media with the hashtag shit. My mama says, Mm -hmm. and I would use that hashtag for everything that she said. And I kept, Mm -hmm. and it didn't hit me until I was writing her eulogy. Um, which was a year, almost a year later after she passed, um, because I decided we couldn't have a memorial service. We couldn't have a burial. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when I went to the funeral home, it was literally, there was a refrigerator truck in the parking lot. Um, The city was hit by a bomb. 
literally. Like it looked like it was hit by a bomb. All the hospitals had refrigerator trucks. They had morgues that were made on the sidewalk. There were wooden structures on, outside of every hospital. That's crazy. And um, so it was, it was a very like scary time. And then mm-hmm. I, I when we did my mother's, um, you know, arrangements for, and the only thing we could do was cremation. So mm-hmm. um, it took me a while to get her ashes back because everything was backlogged. So it was about mm-hmm. six weeks later when I finally got her ashes. Um, and then, um, and then the next day, I woke up with COVID. I was oh my gosh. for almost six weeks, almost two months. I was down for the count. And that's how we knew that she had it because I was with her every single yeah. day leading up to that. I was in the ER with her without a mask mm-hmm. and it just hit us and it hit us both really hard. And um, unfortunately she didn't survive it, but she was, you know, I was at peace with the fact that not only did she, um, did she leave on her own terms? Mm-hmm. Um she, the, they called me and they said it was very odd. She was, she woke up, she wasn't feeling well. She walked, she, she wheeled herself to the nurse's station, sat with her favorite nurse and she was mid sentence and she just slumped over. By the time they got her back to the bed, she had passed. So wow. she went that quickly. And that, so mm-hmm. that's a little solace I have in that, but it made me remember all those funny things that she said. So then I started searching for them and I put them all together and my friend Sarah helped me compile them. She's a whiz at search engines. And Mm -hmm. so she found on all of my social platforms and she put it in one document for me. And I was like, this is brilliant. I have to do this. This has to be a something. And I was like, Oh, this is her memorial. This is her, this, this is her, um, this, this is her, um, uh, uh, eulogy. And then I was going to put little cards on each one of the chairs and each card would have a quote, um, but that never happened. A year later, I'm starting to write her eulogy because we had planned the burial finally, but we had lost six people. So we were doing a group memorial service for all that we lost during the pandemic. And not everybody wow. we lost to COVID. We did lose um, a cousin to cancer and mm-hmm. um, you know, one person had a stroke, that kind of thing, but most of them were COVID. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so with that, I, uh, I was able to create the book. And then when I was reading it, I was like, this is my mom's story. And, yeah. it, and then I would share it with other people like, are you going to publish this? And I was like, well, no, it's just her eulogy. And they're like, you need to publish this. You need to tell your story in yeah. the beginning. And, and just because it, and it's become a, you know, from a self-publishing point of view, it's a success. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were to, put it against any other book that is published by a big publishing house. No. Um, Selling 2000 books in one year is usually like unheard of in the self-publishing industry. Um, But the more you promote it, the more you promote yourself, the more you you help people help you promote it. Um, So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's sold over 2000 copies. It's now available on Kindle. And, um, and it was just this, this little love letter to my mom and thank you, you know, like, yeah. Thank you for life. Thank you for these laughs. And th- and people people would message me privately and email me and say like this was, you know, this was exactly what I mean. your mom was just like my dad or your mom was just like my mom. My grandmother mm-hmm. does the same things or they would ask me advice, "Hey, what did you do when your mom was 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 very angry? I have a problem mm-hmm. trying to get my grandmother to use the shower." You know, so 
they would ju- I would just give them, you know, it just became this dialogue. And yeah. I just think it's a fun way of looking at it. But the original inspiration started mm-hmm. right after mom passed. I started writing the cookbook, which is in edits right now. The cookbook's called Escape to Ravioli Mountain, a memoir in food. And basically it's, uh, it's, it's about the time that I was living with my grandmother in the 1970s and growing up on a mm-hmm. small family farm and all the recipes that my grandmother created and how she taught me how to cook, how she taught mm-hmm. me how to clean, how she taught me how to sew. So all mm-hmm. those, all those things from childhood are very much in the first book. And then I put it mm-hmm. on hold to publish this one. Also, here's a, t- a tip if anybody's out there who wants to publish the, a book by themselves. Um, do something small first, mm-hmm. because I will tell you this, and a cookbook is not only a book, it's a rec- it's a list of recipes, and the recipe editing is worse and harder than editing words. And I can imagine. Not- you have to be so clear with the instructions on exactly. how you how you do everything, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I managed to balance the two. Um, and then life gets in the way and pandemic sort of ended and we went back to work. So my, mm-hmm. uh, my time that I could devote to the cookbook is literally once a week. I mm-hmm. chat with my, my friend in Sweden and we, we, you know, I go through the book and I'm doing it page by page. Um, yeah. and then, you know, like hope if, if I could, if I could magically make it trans transform and make it published by December, I would do it right now, but it's just, it, it's just so much work. It is so much where editing is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Shit My Mama Says was edited seven times before it went to publish it. And then after a year, the Kindle version mm-hmm. is a revised version. So okay. um, so if you have the hard copy, buy the Kindle because the Kindle is, um, it ha- the one, you, you got the Kindle, which is the updated version of the, of the book. Sure. Um, but it, okay. it has some new sayings. There's a couple of quotes that were missing from the original mm-hmm. book. So, And that's the joy of self-publishing, by the way. Um, yeah. So there's a mistake. You just you just edit it, reload the and reload a new manuscript in 72 hours. The edits back into your book. So yeah. it's it's and you get 60. percent I'm not I'm not trying to. I mean I don't work for Amazon. Sure. But you get 60 percent of the royalties after after printing, and mm. so you know. So I also there's a thing I learned. Um, I did a, a self publishing school weekend. Mm-hmm. There is a thing called self publishing school. If you have the resources. It is worth it. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, I just did a weekend and I learned so much, but, um, it's that's the four awesome. P's. Who's mm-hmm. your person? Who's the person that's going to read your book? Mm-hmm. What's their pain? What are they going through that your book is going to help them? What's your promise and mm-hmm. what's your price? And so with those four, I found that it's anyone who's my person is anyone who's dealing with dementia, dealing with a person with dementia, dealing with a family member who has a mouth like a truck driver. What's their pain, <laughs> the suffering that you're going through, the guilt that you mm. suffer when you're a caregiver to, to forgive yourself is one of the hardest things. Uh, a person, pain, promise. What's my promise? You're going to laugh. And my promise is you will laugh. You may cry a little bit. There's a little touch. There's some touching moments in there because it was my mother and I. It's our, it's our, it's our story. And then sure. price. Um, I keep the book, the book under $10. And that's because... Everybody was hit by the pandemic. So you're not going to be able to afford a book that's $30, $40. And also, this yeah. is not a book that warrants being charged, costing that much. It's sure. a small, 100-page, little mm-hmm. love letter to my mom. 
and 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 I'm my and I hope it makes people laugh. So yeah. No, that's wonderful. I I know that there are probably so many um, creative business owners or just people out there who have thought about um, publishing a book. I know my husband has thought about it. Um, He's very creative. He loves writing. Um, I've thought about it myself. And so, you know, those tips are so helpful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I just kind of wanted to ask, um, you know, what, what is your goal with these books? Is it just like a, this is your personal passion. You're just letting yourself go with these. Are you hoping this helps someone? Um, yeah. What's the purpose there for you? Oh, the, the purpose of any art is to get it out of your head. And I've been an sure. artist my entire life. In fact, one somebody called me on a podcast. They called me the multi-hyphenated artist. And that's <laughs> very true because I have done so mm-hmm. much related to art. I've, yeah. always wanted to, I've always wanted to write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I never thought I would write a cookbook. I never thought I would write or produce anything because I'm not, a, I'm not an editor, sure. I'm not a writer. And yeah. I'm certainly, you know, like this was certainly out of my wheelhouse. Um, mm-hmm. the idea that anyone can do this is mm-hmm. out there. And I encourage yeah. everybody because self-publishing is super easy and it's user-friendly. Mm-hmm. Now, if you are wanting to go the more the 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 publishing route by going to mm-hmm. finding a literary agent then a publishing house trying to get an advance all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff you're going to be up against a lot of challenges yeah of publishing you do your own work so what you mm-hmm. put into it you get out and the one thing that I did do that was and and I love podcasts I love being on podcasts the one mm-hmm. tip was that do 100 podcasts in one year mm. and you will see your book grow. And I did, I'm actually, I'm up to like 118 right now. No, that's amazing. 130 actually, I think it was. Oh my gosh. Time. And um, most of them are on my link tree. So this one will be up there on the top of the link tree. Um, nice. But um, I, I, the more you get your word out, your, mm. your work is being viewed by a group of people who have no idea who you are. And sure. then in turn, the podcaster is being seen by people that, that are my people. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a mutually beneficial thing, but it gets the more of that web that you create by doing these mm-hmm. interviews. And they're easy to find um, podcast interviews, yeah, absolutely. Uh, sites on Facebook and things like that. And you just mm-hmm. post about yourself, what you want to talk about. And there are a million podcasts out there. And people love podcasts to listen to on the, while they're on the, in, in the car, while mm-hmm. they're, you know, when the kids are asleep or something like that, you know, it's not, it's an alternative to turning on the TV and you mm-hmm. learn something new. Um, but as far as like the purpose, um, mm-hmm. I love to cook and I cook on Instagram live with some people and um, I give, I, I get, you know, I give tips and tricks that I learned from my grandmother. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I love that aspect of it. Um, Mm -hmm. is there another book, another cookbook? I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, these came out of the blue. And like I said, we were in a pandemic. It was the, it was, it was like, how do you, how do you pivot when you go to do your job? I don't have a trapeze in my living room. So it's not like I could, you know, and it's not like I can teach people virtually a trapeze, you know, um, although people did it on the, (laughs) people managed to figure it out during the pandemic. So, um, Good for them. That's crazy. Exactly. I was like, that's (laughs) um, but I 
I was able to navigate that by, I had these mm-hmm. bugs in my ear. And then when mom passed the, you know, I wasn't even thinking about shit. My mama says, because yeah. the cookbook started everything. And then when it was a year to the day that she passed and I started to write her eulogy, started to plan her memorial, that mm-hmm. I realized that shit my mama says was the best way to start my self-publishing journey because it's small, mm-hmm. it's easier to it's easier to format. There's yeah. not a lot of pictures, there's not a lot of discussion, there's not a lot of descriptions. And so going yeah. through that gave me the insight to really go into Escape to Ravioli Mountain in a way mm-hmm. that I'd never thought I would I would be editing content before. So it's yeah. it is it's very it's it's I don't uh, to answer it I don't know what's up what's next but I mean as soon as the cookbook's published I'll be on the pod, pod, podcast circuit again I'll be doing yeah. cooking live on Instagram and you know we'll, and and who knows I mean the biggest thing that I'm getting out of all of this is that mm-hmm. I will always be an artist. So no matter what yeah. medium I can always create and yeah. being, and, and being a physical comedian as well as a, you know, yeah. I, I do um, stand up. I also do singing impressions in my stand up. Mm-hmm. So my laughter is what I'm after. That's the whole, like nothing make laughter is my crack. The minute <laughs> that I hear an audience laugh, I, it's the most addictive sound to me in the entire mm-hmm. world because you know, you got them, you know, you entertain them, you know, that they listen to you and it, be- and it becomes this um, intimate relationship with the audience. And even though 2000 people out there, maybe I know 500 of them, um, mm-hmm. about my book, most people are having a good chuckle at, at my mom's sayings and, and my experience with her. So um, I love and, that. And a lot of people are learning from it. So um, yeah, like I said, I don't know, but, I'm open to the universe, you know, and the universe will show you, the universe will guide you. Um, Mm -hmm. We will, we will see what the next chapter is in my life. So. Yeah. That's so, so amazing. Thank you so much for all of your advice and also just sharing a piece of your life story with us, Bobby. Um, It, yeah, this is awesome. I can't wait to see. um, I can't wait to see what you come out with next. And um, I'm definitely super interested in watching you cook on Instagram now. I love cooking myself. Oh, well, we, you know, we should do it. Like, I yeah, let's do it. Time and find a time we and day. And I'll, I'll send you a recipe list from the cookbook and you pick pick something that you want to make for the family and we can do it live and have a glass of that wine. That would be and, so fun. Yeah, yes, all, I'm... I'm half I'm half Puerto Rican. I'm actually in, in Pittsburgh in oh, Pennsylvania. Cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm half Puerto Rican, so um, I'm actually thinking a lot about food right now because I'm mm-hmm. helping cook Thanksgiving. Right. And we always had like traditional, you know, traditional food, uh, you know, turkey, mashed potatoes, right. all that stuff. But then we also had traditional Puerto Rican dishes that we would eat during Thanksgiving. And so we make pasteles mm-hmm. and um, rice and gandulas and, you know, I've... I've always made that for Thanksgiving in addition. And so I'm very excited, particularly about the pastelas. My husband thinks they look like giant slugs, but <laughs> I love them. I think they're wonderful. I can't wait to eat them <laughs> next week. Uh, but yeah, we should definitely do something. Yeah, on I'm, I'm actually brew, brewing up um, a batch of lemoncello for Thanksgiving. That's like one of the things that I that I gift everybody every year is grandma's lemoncello. Awesome. So yeah. 
Oh man, that sounds so good. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you, Bobby. And um, yeah, we will talk soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the Handmade CEO podcast. Check out the show notes to get a closer look at our guest today and our special offers. Most importantly, check out and join our membership for makers, Happening Hands, where we feature courses, workshops, monthly coaching, and more for makers and creative business owners who are ready to bring their businesses to the next level. You can do this by going to www.happeninghands.com. See you next time. And until then, don't forget that no dream is too big to turn into your dream job.